by episode, storyline by storyline, character by character, as we break down the making of your favorite zip code, with your host, <laughs> Charles Rose. Did I say that? Harry yeah. Mullen. There was this thing about the, the, the real person, and we go, what? We're getting rid of this guy. Pete Ferrero. I'm feeling wonderful. <laughs> Kathleen looks crush, TV crush worthy. Like so many special guests. And all your questions, live on the Beverly Hills 90210 Show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, here we are back again yeah. on the Beverly 2022. Hills. Back again. Chuck, it's good to have you here. Um, I know you're very busy these days. You're going on a trip and whatnot. Uh, let's go back. Holidays. We did the big... The big holiday show. Uh, how, how are you feeling all through the holidays? Everything good? The holidays were good. Yeah, we we uh, were able. <laughs> we went down to the desert, be with another family, be with Lindsay, my grandchildren, and Lindsay and Josh. And of course, uh, why I was there the first uh, night we arrived, I was told that my nephew, who I was with um, two days before, had come down with COVID. So we spent, I spent the first day with Karen trying to find a place where we could get urgent care and get the tests in the Coachella Valley. Um, and, uh, but, you know, still, you know, there's something about if you, if you reach a certain point in life, like I just did, now I'm officially old, like Larry, before I was on the cusp. <laughs> right. Um, we are the two, I, I, you know, but still, no matter what your one's age I can still rely on the slogan that got us through making 90210, which you know, we've talked about it, Beverly Hills 90210, helping to keep America immature. <laughs> exactly. And I certainly like uh, an immature company, a country better than an angry one. Um, oh, for sure. So well, but so uh, you're good, right? You no COVID. Everything was fine with that. It feeling feeling out. good. My daughter's moving up to San Francisco. I'm I'm getting very involved with Venice politics. We had a very uh, interesting session at my house the other day with one of the mayoral candidates and uh, with some of the neighbors here in Venice, being able to tell her why uh, we all feel persecuted in our own ways. <laughs> and uh, we made a big impression, and so that was a good worthwhile day. And uh, but now I'm back in the zip code, so hey, That's it. exactly. I mean, this is this is a fun uh, episode. We were we just watched it a little bit earlier on Patreon. Um, there's a lot of things happening. It's a transition episode. Uh, we're gonna get into all the different different points, but uh, Babette and Jackie have this cocaine thing, and Mel Mel is cheating, and uh, you know Duke makes his appearance, and Dylan needs to decide. So there's a lot of things happening. Why don't you set us up and tell me where you are in the world of 90210 at this time period, season three. This is the middle. I think it's the middle of the season, so uh, Midlife Now Watt is also somewhere in the middle as well, so I think so. I don't. I don't have. Fortunately, forgive me. I don't have my. We we, we did my office, my desk, so mm. I don't have all my papers in front to um, uh, compare ratings and things along those lines. But it certainly was a period of time that you know we um, 
we had gone up, you know, we, we were in the 28, 29 uh, episode. You're, you know, you were in about episode 13, 14, 15, 16, those, those numbers. And um, this this one was really the, uh, you know, in, and we wait to the very last scene to know this, but in every capacity, what this is, is that things are getting, as we say, set up. So working from the back to the front, we set up that, oh, my God, we end with a news report that interrupts a basketball game that Brandon is betting on, that Jack McKay has been released from federal prison two years early. We, for the first time as we're at the spa, that Kelly starts to look at her body in a different way and, and, um, and, and, and is not happy with what uh, she sees, which sets up the arc that is perfectly perfect. And, um, and, uh, and and some of the other issues that would come up, not only in season three, but certainly season five, having to do with modeling and things like that, body image. I think and it's something that, 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 that carries it's through. The Ke- whole Kelly, through. Yeah, yeah, Kelly's whole, whole season, right, yeah, right. The whole series, too, yeah. And uh, you said, like, with Duke coming, so it's the beginning of here's a guy who is uh, a bookie. And uh, with our, our friend Billy Vera, so that you know gets gets set up, but um, and 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 dealing or and of course one that really lasts into the fourth year is that Mel and that that in the gossip mill you always you know people like to gossip or hear gossip and and you know who you know traditionally you know it's masseuses can talk a lot or. Um, <laughs> I can tell you a funny side story on that uh, when, when, when we, we want, but also, um, you know, that masseuses talk a lot and, and, and the haircutters do because they're with, they're with people and, you know, gossips are gossips. And, um, and this was supposed to be the kind of spa, you know, originally we wanted to do it like, like a Miraval or something in the desert like that. So we had to create this urban spa. And, you know, I was a little critical when we started out. I was saying to you, Pete, uh, you know, we had to go to the Lowe's Hotel. It was just built. You know, we, we couldn't find the, the kind of look, the old L.A. look I was looking for. Didn't matter. I mean, I think that, again, uh, you, you, you fans uh, will remember that oftentimes we have our um, our set deck I had Jill Henkel on this to show and uh, and she went just you know on fire on this one and there's no uh, way to know that it was a hotel it looks like a spa resort that was set up I would never even realize it was the Lowe's so yeah. it, I mean it was just a credit to both drew and Jill and 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 on the whole Tom Victor the whole the whole team yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly so um you know, so it was a and it was a very LA episode because what do people goss, gossip about? They gossip about sex. They gossip about sex and money. And so uh this is uh um and I think there's uh you know, and then and then we, we were looking through the idea that when we find out that this is that in, in a tradition, what, what went on a lot in Beverly Hills and probably still go on, that there's there's another stereotype, the dentist fool around with their patients or their nurses or whatever. And, um, yeah. and, and we go right to that with our, with our oral surgeon, Mel Silver, because he's the object of this stuff. And then of course, speaking of fooling around, um, Jim in the episode before hired a very good looking uh, assistant 
and starts to fantasize like a midlife crisis. So we've got midlife stuff going all over the fact that I had turned 40 uh, while we were doing this episode had no bearing on any of that. No, it did not. So you you, <laughs> you weren't you weren't going through. I would know nothing about midlife. <laughs> not not at this point, anyway. The end yeah. of the decade, maybe yes, but not at this point. Right. This is still you're just speculating on what it might be like. But I mean, I'm yes. sure that you. I mean, okay. Larry told me in the in, last week that at the start of every season, you they would go and and the whole group would sit down and uh, you know. Talk about what's going to happen this season. Were you doing that in season three? Get the Jessica and Steve and everybody sort of together and go through what might be happening. Was it? Was that something you guys did? Everybody together? No. Jessica and Steve, yes. Remember, we had Darren had left at sure. the start of season three. We had two new writers. We 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 picked up, but we didn't give them anything to do to seasons to episodes nine and ten. Uh, High wire. The one where uh, it has a lot to do with the pressure of going to college. And um, it was Mr. Spelling hated the episode, by the way. And and uh, it be, because it had to do with going to college. And, and right. of course, Home and Away uh, with, with the about the football game that gets canceled because of gun violence. And uh, and that was Chip Johannesson. So they were and who became a mainstay of those kind of meetings that Larry would be talking about. But, you know, I was a little, you know, showrunners who are who are strong showrunners, I think, are there because they're writers. You know, if you're if right. you're a non-writing showrunner, that's a whole other process. But if you're a writing showrunner, then you kind of know after a while what 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 you need to do to string the stuff along and i didn't really need a whole room i, I ran my show i think we've talked about it i ran my show very differently even when larry uh came in in season four and everybody we would have a, mo a morning meeting usually when we would discuss what was going on with the writing and what was this and where we were at and and other matters but then when new stories were being broken Sure, I weighed in on the kind of things that I liked, an A story, a B story, a C story, but I wanted people to break away in small groups, do their work, and come back in five hours. Right. I didn't need, I didn't feel it, I needed to supervise every second going on. And most showrunners do, for whatever reason, whether they're whether whether you become a showrunner and you immediately become uh, power hungry or anal or or whatever. But I just wanted to get through the day. And the only way to get through my complicated days with the amount of writers and producers we had was to delegate. But right. know that um, if something doesn't work out in the process of delegation, that it was on my shoulders to fix it. Right. And nobody else's because you were the one. Well, or, yeah. or to turn to people for help and say, hey, sure. we got to do this. But. But it was on my, the decisions and all of that. So, no, we didn't have that big one. I mean, we may have, in general, people, what did they like to do, just like I did with the actors. Sure. But, you know, we'd have lists, and then we'd mix and match. But mm -hmm. um, this one was a little – season three, uh, you've heard me also say on these podcasts that I, re I actually ran five different television shows. Right. So this one is, the you know, senior year. And so we knew that things pertaining to graduation 
we're going to be there at the back end. So we knew where we were going in it. It wasn't having to manufacture. Right. That that all the elements that, that happened within it, uh, Brenda deciding to go to school in Minnesota, um, that, uh, otherwise, you know, that, that those kind of things are the, are the details. But we, you know the general, at least you have a place to, to hang some of your, your storylines and, and best lines of dialogue and, and character moves, et cetera, et cetera. So moving into this season, you know, I guess, the big explosion, literally, with Jack McKay is one of the things that you're going to go to this this season, right? Is that where you're sort of, and, and we'll do this thing with Jack McKay. Well, we knew there was going to be a triangle. That too. How mm-hmm. the triangle worked out, uh, we, we knew how to do it in the summer episodes. Sure. It didn't really happen. Let's bury it. Um, uh, you know, I again, uh, didn't realize I, I had forgotten about the triangle that, um, that they made a point that Kelly and didn't Dylan didn't sleep together that night. Right. Um, I, I would have just, I think we would have done better just to, to in 2020 hindsight, just to not deal with that and let the audience wonder one way or the other, rather than immediately let them know that. And and I'm sure that was a concession I had to make to the network. Or sure. Mr. Spelling or so, somebody. I, I, it's not, it's not, it, it took away the fun of did she or didn't she? Yeah. Um, which I think also was, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing this. You know, when, when you tell right. somebody, then, then you, you know what's been done. And so there isn't the, uh, the, the fervor around it. Sure. Uh, all right, let's look at some of these different things. Um, the first one we'll look at is Jim Walsh's secretary, um, who is the actress is Paula Tricky. We were talking about her before. She is stunning um, then and now. Um, you said in the Patreon, and maybe you can kind of talk about this, you know, people come in and audition and they come and read and, and uh, all the time. And this one... Got your attention. Paula Tricky <laughs> gets your attention for. Yes. Yeah. She, for whatever reason, you know, I mean, you know, I, I'm really, you know, uh, personal to TMI here, but I'm up very attracted to people with dark hairs. Of course, I marry a redhead. But right. <laughs> nonetheless, uh, I, I, I guess I'm attracted to all women. Let's be face it. But, Fair enough. But yes. there's something about a woman with a black, you know, it's always been that. And, you know, and people came in in different ways and just where, the, you know, they dress in the outfits. And I can't remember what Paula Tricky was wearing. It was There may have been a bare midriff involved. I'm not 100% sure. But she knew that her her role was to be the, was, was a two-episode arc and was a temptress. And all I remember is when she left, um, the, the room broke down. And of course, you know, you guys here in the Patreon see me in the Patreon. Well, I'm free to be a little crazy. Right. I'm allowed to do it. I have fun doing it. Why not? Uh, the best example, of course, would be. I actually did the equivalent when she left the room. I think I started doing push ups or jumping jacks, <laughs> running around in a circle. Um, you know, because she, she, but the point was, is that we had a lot of attractive actors, male and female come through the rooms. Sure. And you really had to have the talent to pull it, the, the, the character off. She did, but she was 
I will always remember her, and this is no knock on anybody else, as my uh, my biggest crush on any act, guest star that we ever had come through the door. Fair enough. Okay, I am going to go to an interview with Paula Tricky, who played Dottie. Um, she just conducted it with me, so that's why I'm sort of like slotting it in here to the interview. Um, she says a lot of interesting things, so uh, enjoy this one. All right, so 90210, you're, you're, you're an actor, you're working in the 90s, and you get this call for 90210. Was it, was it an offer, or I think Chuck told me it was an audition. It was an audition, yeah. I auditioned with like 100 girls, and then they, they had me come in for a callback, but it took forever. It was like two weeks for a callback or something like that. Not like they turn it around now, but, um, but um, I, I asked my manager, I go, what's going on? I, you said I have a callback, but wait. And he goes, well, you know, they have to check your background and this and that and whatever. It's a wholesome show. And I'm like, wholesome show? <laughs> <laughs> the thing that they wrote was not wholesome. <laughs> no, not wholesome. So, yeah. you know, and I, I guess I checked out, but he, but when I went in there and I met the director, the first director, um, he said, you knew you had this wrapped up, didn't you? When you came in an audition and I said, no, I had no idea. I had no clue whatsoever. Ch Charles Rosen was one of the executive producers. He's oh, okay. He wanted to be here. He's flying to San Francisco. Oh. He just missed you. But um, oh, I'm he, so sorry. He, he said that as soon as you walked in the room, they all knew. They were like, "This is her. This is this is this this is this Dottie. This is her," and they <laughs> they they talked and they were excited about you and all that. I mean, what did you think of the script when you read it? That you're going to be this, uh, you know, flirting with Jim Walsh and all oh, of this. Oh, I thought it was hysterical. <laughs> I thought it was hysterical at first. I wasn't under. I mean, I was like 24, or 25. This is like 30 years ago, but um, but you know, I thought it was hysterical. But I'm like, am I? Is this a flashback or is this not a? I wasn't getting the whole concept of what they were doing. And, you know, he goes into dream mode or whatever and whatever. So but I had uh, so much fun. I mean, yeah, I walked in the makeup trip. Well, I got on set and uh, first person to come up to me and introduce themselves, even though I had no scenes with them, was Shannon Doherty. Incredible. Super cool. Very Super cool. Super cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm in the makeup trailer. I've got stories, man. I like to throw people under the bus. But I go for it. <laughs> Tori <laughs> already knows it. I didn't have any scenes of Tori, but Tori ended up becoming a good friend of mine because we went to Monte Carlo together. Nice. But um, uh, Jenny Gard. So I walk up, you know, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm on the show. And so I walk into the makeup trailer and I go, hi, I'm Paula. Nice to meet you. And I take, you know, shake her hand or try to shake her hand. And she goes, <laughs> wow. And just gives me the nose. Chill just no she's sitting in her makeup trailer just doing her you know she didn't have a makeup artist around her nothing right. I thought, oh, you know well you know the rumors were that shannon was the bad one not at all right i mean and it turns out your experience is that she was not so bad yeah uh she she actually came across this you know the, the set to come meet mm -hmm. me and i was i mean i wasn't in any scenes with her but she was cool and that's when i first met uh dean kane okay yeah okay so I'm in the makeup trailer and he walks in and we look at each other and at the exact same time, we both said, you could be my brother, sister. I mean, cause we looked so much alike back yeah. then. So okay. how, are the, how are the guys with you? Uh, Jason, oh Luke and they, all those? They were great. 
they were great. Um, I was very sad when Luke died. Um, I was going to ask you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I actually, my knees came up from, from underneath me when, when he, when he passed away. I mean, I would see him at my friend, Patrick Warburton, you know, putty from Seinfeld. Yes. So, so you know, the big dumb guy. I so love would have, yeah. Oh, he's so funny. Yeah. You call his answering machine. It goes, uh, you know what to do. Yeah, it's that big dumb voice. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> <laughs> it's beep after that. But, um, he would be at um, at parties at uh, Patty's, and then um, I almost did a movie with him. It was a uh, smash up derby movie, but mm. it ended, ended up not getting made. But um, but uh, I had heard Jason had a crush on me. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I don't think Luke really cared. You know, he would. You know. But then our, our daughters going into middle school, they went to middle school together in, in the oh. valley. Yeah. Well, you, you and Luke's, you mean? Yeah, but what's so funny is these guys are supposed to be in high school and, and they were older than me <laughs> in my role. That's right. <laughs> Some of them were, not all of them. I think Luke was older than me. And I think, uh, I don't know, maybe Jason was, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's funny. On Friday and Saturday, the Hollywood show. And it's at the Hollywood Burbank Marriott. And it's the autograph show. So it you'll be there and uh, signing autographs and taking pictures and all that fun stuff, right? All of that. There's going to be a lot of people. Um, what I saw from Star Trek, the original one. Yeah. And and um, like Chips, I think Larry Wilcox and Eric Estrada were scheduled to be there. A few others. So uh, I'm going to LA for 10 days, leaving tomorrow. Very cool. All right. Yeah. This has been great. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Paula. I wanted to ask you this. And we'll think of the best way to say this but in the first season there's an episode called the 17 year itch we have talked about that a little bit us and on the show and sometimes it blurs if we talked about it off or on but it didn't it wasn't a high ratings grab talking about the parents i think that's fair to say uh yes yes so, it was the episode we did transitioning out of the of my the first producer jeffrey white into paul wagner so it was the one that felt there was a twin study in it. But just the idea being that the marriage was in trouble sounds better when on Knott's Landing than it did totally. on 90210. It, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't a condition. Because also looking back at the stuff now, we in, in season one, you know, Cindy was pretty uniformly an unhappy camper being in Beverly Hills. She sure. often resorted to that almost throughout the high school years, maybe by season three, she had settled into the landscape, but certainly the first two years, her antipathy for being in uh, Tinseltown and not Minnesota uh, was, was, you know, evident. And uh, so her in the 17 year itch, having an, uh, running into her old boyfriend in which she had a serious relationship with, um, and and not sure if that was ever resolved. And those relationships are never resolved. Right. If you've, you know, um, mm -hmm. I remember one member of our cast, I won't say who, told me that once you see, once you make love to a woman, in a, even in a casual way, that's just something you know about them and they know about you, if you've both been naked in a room. Fair so, enough, right. You know, these <laughs> yeah. two people... Cindy and her had been naked in a room. That's right. And, and I think there was, so I think that, again, when we were working at Fox and under the administration of Barry Diller, 
the the net the the culture of that network was always something's wrong, something needs to be fixed. Right. Um, it, you know, it, in fact, it was very. Once we got to a point that it didn't need to be fixed, it almost didn't feel like Fox. Right. But in the begin, but certainly Mr. Diller had gone by that point. So this was an episode that whether it was the ratings or don't do adults or don't do, right. you know, why do we have a housekeeper in it? You know, all certain, which is, is so Beverly Hills. Uh, it was it was unfair. And, and, and again, really prohibited us from doing some pretty interesting storylines sure. um, that I was aware of. Uh, I had even written a pilot prior to starting in 902 and one of the last ones I did for ABC which was called Tulio and the Tall Tales of the 20th Century, which was about an illegal in mm. L.A. Oh, interesting. So I was, I was real. There were a lot of stories to sure. tell. Sure, yeah. And uh, we didn't get to tell too many of them. East Side Story, yes, but not too many others. I bring up 17-Year Itch because it's, it's parent-driven. Ratings don't do well. You guys probably put your foot in the water there and said, I don't know if we should go back down this road with parents. But now this episode has a lot of parents. You know what I mean? And it's a lot of similar things. Jackie and Mel, uh, you know, only this time now Jim is having this midlife crisis thing. So it's okay now. What made it – What? how did it change? Well, why remember, it- remember that, that Mel and Jackie – their whole getting attracted to each other at the beach club, dating, finding out she's pregnant, getting married, all of these different things that occurred, occurred so we could see what the impact was on their children. Yes. Mm-hmm. This episode is is off the beaten track a little bit because it is the, you know, you, you have a, you know, an A story, a B story, and then often a comedy runner. This was the comedy runner. And the only person, two people who seem to know or care about uh, uh, Jim Walsh's fantasies towards the Paula Tricky character was Cindy and Brandon. Right. So Brandon would start with his. He teased her. And that was a, you know, and that was what you'd want, excuse me, teased him. About it. That's that's what you'd want the the son to do. And yeah, dad, hey, you're going into the office and and I won't tell and whatever else. Sure. You know, it's not just, you know, I think if if lines had been crossed then and and he had found out and there was his mother upset, he would have jumped. He he would not have been happy with totally different. But he didn't. Yeah. But this was a different environment to that to that extent. And of course, then the other one was Cindy. And why? And Cindy, I think, was feeling um, at that point, which which women in their middle aged women here in Hollywood and in, in other towns, of course, uh, particularly in the 90s, um, before there was vaginal rejuvenation, um, felt that they were all over the hill. Right. Right. And, and so we, we we took that for Cindy. And as I think I commented on the Patreon you know, it sure worked. It sure we needed her to be that way. Sure. But the question is, would she really have been that way? I mean, the, the the fact is, is that, you know, Karen would go places out of town without me. I'd go places out of town without her. And, you know, you just, you, you can either drive yourself crazy or have faith that your relationship and the relationship, the family relationship you have is going to um, persevere and the, uh, you won't be sidetracked. Your partner won't be sidetracked by a, uh, uh, you know, 
a beautiful body or, 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 or a smiling face, you know? Right. I mean, and it's a great, I mean, it's great stuff for, for, for James Eckhouse, you know, it challenges them outside of the, you know, he, most of his stuff was dealing with kids, right. But this is his own, this is his own stuff that he would be going through. So I think it gave that character a little bit of something too. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And also he brought humor to it. It allowed us to have a fantasy because I think the episode before there were a lot of fantasies. I think so. Yeah, and this, this one just, just, a, had, yeah, just the, had the one. Right. Yeah. I mean, and he's and and Brandon is also sort of grounded in reality that well, he doesn't think that his dad is actually going to you know have an affair with the Paula Tricky character. No, he's just teasing. <laughs> he's he's just teasing, teasing him. Right. Exactly. And even Steve gets in on the. Uh, on the action at some right, point in the right. episode as well. Was there a book? I mean, I we talked in the Patreon and I said this seems to be a fictional book, but was the was there any book like this that had existed that you were aware of that, that you were referencing, or was it created for this? You know, the book was created for this uh created story. created for it, although it was all uh, you know, how to remain youthful. And and again, you know, it's always always for me, you know, I would see men like photographs of men my age in my 40s, 50s, 60s, very successful men. Right. And I would look at guys, you know, so I look at these men, these bankers, these people have done very well. And they were, you know, often Wall Street people or Washington had been with the FCC, very serious corporate executives. And they all look 15 years older than I did. Right. Because here we had the beach here we had, you know, it didn't have sure. the we had stresses, but they weren't the same kind of I'm doing 20 hours in a row for, um, you know, Shearson and uh, and and and, uh, you know, so I need to uh, or, or whatever it would be Chase Bank. And I'm in the corporate division in this. They all look so much older. So, you know, here's there was always that kind of thing of how to be youthful, more youthful and certainly became a cottage industry and no place was more uh involved with that than southern california which was this was the epicenter of that um and you know the uh the james the jim walsh back in the 90s too what was kind of happening from what i remember is there was a lot more talk about this kind of self-help reading this Oprah, you know, so this was sort of a part of the nineties culture that people were starting to talk about their feelings like this. I mean, in, I don't know that it was like that in the sixties and seventies. I think that this is a nineties thing that, that started to happen. Well, no, it was late sixties, seventies, Esalen and counter groups. People sure. started to do yeah. the feeling. What can you do? You know, expressing yourself, not, not being repressed because you know, the, if there's one thing that, people reflect on historians as well as people who lived there at the time that the 1950s was homogeneous and repressed in sure. a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that, but there's, but, but certainly those kind of, um, you know, nineties also yoga kind of had started exactly. around and taking over from massages. And, and, yes. and so this, there, there was that, you know, all around us to take advantage and the mother daughters going to spas, um, you know, seemed like something kind of fresh and new. Uh, my daughter Maxine and my and uh, my, and her mother Karen have gone to spas together more than once. You know, because it's a, it's a good bonding kind of thing. 
The four of them go to the spa. It's They try to convince Andre to go. Of course, she wants to cover it for the paper. That's the only reason you'll get her to do something like this. Um, but it's great. And it's a really good bonding moment with uh, Kelly and Brenda because the two of them are still conflicted in this triangle, but they're in the weird place of the triangle now because they're trying. everybody's trying to get along, right? But, uh, and... And and I believe the episode right either right before it was the one with the with the Princeton boys to men and they basically say you got to decide or we don't you know you yes. got to choose one to the other. They both say to Dylan at the end of that episode, which we played out in a comical way uh, with with Dylan um, playing the song the, at the jukebox playing the old loving spoonful song. Did you ever have to make up your mind? That's happening uh, in this episode too. Yeah, two to three times. Uh, of course, you wouldn't know that to watch it on um, any, any, or any anywhere. Of the yeah, exactly. But that was the that was the intention with the music, music, and that's what we, you know, uh, and and it makes for funny moments. In the Patreon, you said that that song you had this situation happen to you, and that was a song that you listened to, right? I did, I did, but that, but you know, uh, what year was that? Nineteen sixty six. A long time before. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and Nat can't stand the song at this point. It's funny. That Nat, Nat is great in this episode as a, as a comedy buffer in between. Something where the girls are at the spa and there's a gossip that we were talking about. And the gossip um, tells a story about two women uh, that have a, um, uh, you know, basically that the, that, that the two girls lost their friendship over a, a, a guy. So it's playing like now we understand, right, that, that uh, this is us. Oh, my God. Brenda even says and apologizes to her. And um, in that moment, Kelly is worried about her figure. But you told me in the Patreon that you knew where you were going with the figure, that her figure was going to come into with the, with the diet pills. And so you dropped it here that earlier. Right, because because that was what you you needed to do. You need to do that even if it's if it was a single episode. You need to lay in the elements that are going to be used to then you know to twist the story and get to a, a, an interesting place. But you have to start somewhere. Just just as we had already mentioned, this episode ends with the announcement that that uh, Jack McKay is getting out of prison. And uh, and so you know that that's going to be followed up. That's that was very very specific. But sometimes you just lay it in, and it's there for you know future reference. And uh, certainly, it doesn't matter how long the the the, the story or character arc is. You, you you still need to to lay the groundwork and lay it pretty pretty evenly and consistently. Otherwise. It seems very gratuitous. As I used to tell my writing students all the time, um, is this happening because it would be what the characters would be doing? Or is it happening because you need the characters to be doing this to get to your next point? The latter is not the way to go. You, you know, you, you have to make it that, you have to go to that extra step to make it not come out of, uh, out of the blue, but that you've actually, and you hear Larry talk about this so right, earn the right to tell that story, earn the right to get to that scene. And mm. that was pretty important to us to keep the, the material um, dealing, at least have a semblance 
of being real in a show that was clear in 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 a platform that was clearly a fictional television series. But uh, let's talk about Anne Gillespie here. Um, we were watching it, and I mean, she really is pretty incredible. And her and Jenny have this really unique, special bond. I believe it. I believe that these that this is a mother and daughter. Um, talk to me about Anne and what you saw in this. Well, she, as a character, I mean, Anne is a very, we, 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 we now know her in real life and know what a strong person she is and what a principled person she is. But at this point, you know, who knew? She was someone, especially, you know, when she's, she's with this uh, one um, person in the spa, her friend that she used to party with. Oh, and Kelly was aware that this was was here and this could be an influence and everything else. And once through a through gossip, as we as we talked about, that it, it comes out of what what's what's there. Um, Kelly is immediately concerned that, oh my God, I've got to tell my mom. And she's and and she's gonna use this as an excuse to go off the deep end. All right, let's go to an interview that we've conducted with Anne about this episode uh, right now. Someone my age couldn't have looked as good as you did in the years that you did us, especially that first one when we just shot you in the bikini. Yeah, well, and the funny thing is, I mean, I, I, I nobody actually, I, I was playing a lot older than I actually was. So it's unfair for anybody to think that, you know, <laughs> Kelly's Kelly's mom looked as good as she did and was actually old enough to have Kelly. So anyway. Right. Well, that's right. Well, you were playing that you were trying playing yourself to be older. Everybody else in the entire building was playing <laughs> themselves to be younger. You and, and James Eckhouse were playing to that's be older right. and everybody else funny. was not. Yeah. yeah. All right, so this is great. This episode, uh, Midlife Now What, has a, a, a big uh, Jackie storyline. Um, yes. And, and it's, there's some heavy stuff that happens in it. Um, did you, I said to <clears> the episode, <throat> did you get a chance to watch it? I did. Oh, yes. It was really good because I remembered one or two scenes, but I didn't remember the whole episode, and I didn't remember all of what happened. And thank you for sending it. It was really an extraordinary thing. I was so moved, and I thought – this is incredible that on this show for teenagers, we're dealing with such real life stuff. And even, I mean, some of the most hilarious stuff in the show was um, uh, Dylan's fantasies about what midlife would be, which of course were hilarious and ridiculous. But um, I, I thought the girls did such a great job with the comedy. And that was so beautifully offset by the real life stuff that was happening. Um, both in terms of the, you know, the temptation, confusion stuff that uh, James Eckhouse's character was going through and what was really happening with, um, you know, Jackie and Mel. So uh, it was wonderful to see it again. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, when you looked back, were there scenes that you remembered shooting? Oh, yes. The one that I remembered the most was the scene where I come in uh, at the spa late at night and, and Kelly's asleep. And I, I remember how um, lovely that felt to play that scene with, with Jenny. And I think it was also 
this may be sort of predating what I ended up doing uh, in my life, but I was so happy that Jackie's character was able to make some healthy choices um, and to not succumb to the temptation to deal with this trauma um, through using drugs again. And that was, that was lovely uh, for me um, personally, but it was also, you know, there's, I just love this sort of, um, you know, just the, the relaxation that both of us, you know, it was late night, that kind of late night conversation. And she says, you know, why do men cheat? You know, my character says, I don't know, maybe it's genetic. And it's also, it's, I mean, now having lived through my own midlife times, you know, it's very human. It's very human what relationships go through. And um, anyway, I, I just thought it was lovely that this was on a on a show for teenagers that they might be able to contemplate some of the things that. Well, you know, Mr. Spelling, um, right from the start, from your first episode, um, Perfect Mom liked it. So always said to me, but that, that episode made him so proud mm. because we dealt with drug abuse, but it was the parents and it was there to see how the kids, it impacts the kids. Yes. This is true here too, if you yes. think about it. You know, you you you're obviously married to a guy who has a big heart, but he also has a big libido, and, or, or and, ego and, that needs stroking, or whatever you want to say. Yes, uh, both one and the same, and yeah. that and that you know today we we would not have heard the term sex addict very often, at least in those early 1990s. Right. Today we'd know exactly what we were talking about. Yeah, but the uh, uh, so I think that that was. Um, you know, really, really interesting in that. And I also think that it, it, it's praising our, ourselves for nine or two and how we just approach the universe. Yes. As I was saying this to Pete yesterday, that on most shows that, that were serialized, and when this was right before we were becoming uh, serialized, and, and as you know, because you were back there when I was already out of the building, yes. um, it became a soap opera. But what a soap opera would have done, and by the way, what 90210, I imagine in years after I left, Pete did, was that you would have taken the cocaine. And we would have seen that. And, yes. and my feeling is, is that always was, is that if you show somebody who's made mistakes, corrects those mistakes, and finds their inner strength, yeah. you're showing a hero. Yeah. And if you and so why not have people have a heroic yeah. response to it? And I had totally forgotten that element of it and that scene that you described. Yeah. Um, it was my one of my absolutely a real special feeling to it. And also, I really feel that you got um, we were very moved, both Pete and I, you know, just and, it, and talked about it at length. The scene mm -hmm. where you in the night where, where Kelly's going to tell you what happens and we don't have to hear it again. And you, yes, and, that and was such a cool effect of us walking off camera and you kind of watching it in the distance. It was beautiful. It was like film. It wasn't TV, you know. Right. Well, to that end, um, you know, uh, Pete knows that you know my motto and creative motto is steal from the best. I took that moment. The first time I ever saw that moment on primetime, because it was on. Uh, the first season of Miami Vice. Oh, was that and right? So it's, I, a, it's a Michael Mann shot. Mm -hmm. And he did it with Edward James Olmos telling 
the Crocker and Tibbs that their friend has just died. The other thing I wanted to um, say to you is that there, there, there was such maturity in the writing. Um, and to me, I don't remember if we ever dealt with it in other episodes, but Jackie and Mel end up staying together, which means they have worked something out. And that is very mature. If it was a soap opera, they would have split. There's no question, right? Sure. So. Well, you did split. You did split. Oh, did you we did split? Go- but then you, you get did, back, you do okay, split, and then you spend, get back, but you do get back together. Okay. Yeah. You, spent, you spent season four doing that. And the reason it, w- and then season five, you got back together. Okay. And the reason to do that <laughs> is that, and you know why we would have to do it that way, even if we didn't. I mean, we had the infidelity plot, so we would yes. see the, the effect it yes. would have on, uh, you know, David and Kelly. That's right. And, That's and right. so, and so we and, and and your baby Aaron and getting along, right. all sorts of things. Yeah. And and um, again, you know that model that that Mr. Spelling liked, mm-hmm. but also the notion being when you have to do as many episodes as we did, break them up, bring them together, break them up, bring <laughs> right, them together. Right, right, that was right. you know a few things I picked up from Aaron, uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Spelling, and of course that was one of them. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you uh, back to that moment that Chuck was talking about with uh, doing the the scene where. Um, we see it happen. Kelly tells you what happened yes. and you just react. It's just reaction. So it's, it's an interesting thing for an actor to do. Right. It is. It so is. Um, talk to me at, from an actor's perspective of doing a scene like that, as opposed to maybe having the dialogue and having to get yeah. in. Yeah. Right. And having a camera in your face as opposed to knowing the cameras, you know, 20 yards away. Um, well, you know, as I've said this every time I do one of these interviews, but working with Jenny was always a complete and total delight. We enjoyed each other as as humans, but really enjoyed acting with each other too. And so it was an easy thing to just sort of keep ad-libbing, right? As we're as we're going on. And then to sort of have this this moment um, where she actually did tell me what was going on and we embraced. I sat down. I remember feeling like, oh, my legs are giving out. And um, anyway, it was, it's one of those gifts, I would say, of acting that it, you don't, I mean, you could fake it, right? I mean, acting is all pretend anyway, but there was something about giving ourselves over to it that I think is part of what carried it. It wasn't just that you couldn't hear it. And it was sort of dramatic looking. I, I, you know, I, I'd like to think it was also how we were inhabiting, embodying it as as we were experiencing it. It is really an awesome performance. You do do this thing where, like, the weight of everything hits you, and you, you your your knees buckle almost, as you said, you know, and you kind of, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it was a, it was really incredible work. I wanted to ask you, you you, you touched on uh, Jenny and working together. I mean. I'm curious. I was always curious for the from the parents' perspective or the the other actors that were playing parents. Yes. Um. The, 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 they at this point in this show are huge stars. I mean, they're everywhere. They're on Rolling Stone. They're they're in on Arsenio and all of this stuff. Is it a challenge? I mean, I don't know if it's a challenge is the right word, but you have to do scenes together, and you do have this really pretty stuff with each other. I mean, the the moment that you talked about earlier is. I mean, Charles and I. We're just, this is, this is absolutely beautiful. So is there a, how do you get into scenes with someone like that? Who is a young kid dealing with all of these outside elements? Right. Well, you know, I mean, I, 
I feel like I was this little fly on the wall that watched the kids go through this incredible transformation. And it was both exciting and a little terrifying for them and hearing their stories. And, you know, I, I never, ever felt like any of them kept me at arm's length in any way as their fame increased. They, they were still the same people. What I did start to see is the ways they had to protect themselves. Right. I mean, um, you know, I mean, Jenny would tell me stories about taking her daughter to the mall or something or going to the mall. And I was like, how do you do that? And she said, you know, basically I put on my sunglasses and my don't F with me face and I, I go out there. And so it was, um, as I say that, I mean, that was, I was, I was sorry in a way, I mean, excited for them that the show was such a success, but it was not an easy path. And it honestly, it made me not want to seek that kind of notoriety. I'm, I'm a super um, private person. I'm not into that kind of thing. I, I know some people are really, really good at it. Um, and I'm not one of them. So, so that was also sort of a cautionary tale for me, but I never felt like uh, I couldn't reach any one of them or couldn't, you know, they always had time for me. They were always incredibly courteous and to me and, um, um, well, why but, wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they be? They you they were comfortable. They knew you. You yes. knew them. You knew them as people before they were stars. Yes. I always say it's so much easier to be an actor than a star. Yes. Oh I my mean, God! Yes. Yes. You know, you make that trade. Um, it's a little really, bit of a pact with the devil in a way. I think just because you give up your 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 privacy. I mean, just the tiny bit of it that I had because of the show you know, taking my kids to Toys R Us and suddenly have being surrounded by people that wanted my autograph with my children there, that felt like a real invasion. And, you know, obviously people learn how to deal with it and they all did, but, um, you know, they were young to begin with and they, you know, it's, I mean, their brains, a lot of them, their brains weren't fully developed, right? They weren't even like 26 is when your brain's fully developed and they're having to deal with this kind of fame and i'm sure it was overwhelming and heady in the way that that it is you know well jason uh gave me the only real the, the insight on uh, on stardom uh right as i was leaving the show and i back back there was a dinner at the last episode i did at down the one in palm springs and uh dan season five and he said to me that when you're a star you become who you, you, you're allowed to become who you really are for better or worse. Right. You, you, you lose all the inhibitors. You can be nest. So there'll be like, I don't mean to knock this person, but I did know her assistant and her assistant was this wonderful, wonderfully bright woman who went to Princeton and no offense, Leah Michelle, but you treated her really badly and she has a very bad reputation of what stardom did to her. No yeah. offense. I'm just saying that's a classic right. example of, you know, what can happen outside of our 90210 context here. I so. think that that is tough stuff to deal with. I think it takes a really rooted, balanced person right. to not begin to believe your own PR. And that's 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 hard. I mean, we've seen it over and over and over again. You see it. Um, and then you also see some people who like, you know, I mean, I don't know if this story is true or not, but 
I liked, I loved hearing it, is that um, uh, uh, Meryl Streep always did her own ironing, right? Like she could have sent the ironing out, of course. Right. But she just liked to just do her own ironing. And I'm like, well, I don't even do my own ironing right now. <laughs> but but, um, but anyway, I, I, there's something about staying in the daily, in the quotidian activities of living that I think very much helps to counteract the, I remember Jim Carrey once, say, once saying something in an interview, like, you know, it's really hard to take out the garbage when you've think you're like the biggest thing in the planet. That's was actually yeah, well, you know, with Meryl Streep, of course, she kept ironing just in case the acting thing didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very smart for her. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about the character of Jackie. Um, she's very complex. There's a lot of history. There's the, the drugs, like Chuck referenced the Perfect Mom episode, and, um, and now, of course, Mel with the infidelity in this episode. Um, where are you going to as an actor at that time to, you know, I don't know, feel some of this stuff. Well, um, I did, I was a child that came of age in the, in the sixties and seventies, late sixties and seventies. And, you know, I, I did a fair amount of drugs myself. Um, thank goodness it never got out of control or should, I shouldn't say it, it didn't prevent me from living. It didn't ruin any relationships. And it wasn't, it wasn't Jackie level. No, <laughs> right. no. I, you know, I was more of a pothead. I, I, sure. I you, know, you know, but um, I, I have a lot of familiarity with alcoholism. My brother ended up committing suicide. He was mm. a lifelong alcoholic. And so, you know, I, where I went as an actor is to sort of channel some of the um, anxiety. You know, I think he really was somebody that should have been on anti-anxiety medication and was self-medicating through alcohol. And he had a very traumatic beginning. He was adopted into our family and it had several different foster mothers. So there were huge sort of holes in his heart that I, you know, I'm speaking metaphorically, but that, that just couldn't get filled up. Right. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very both sympathetic and kind of wary around that level of addiction because I've lived it. I've lived close to it and it's very painful, painful for everybody. And it's an ins insidious disease and not everybody can get themselves out. And that's, that's the problem. Um, and I was, that's why I was so grateful at least um, in this part of Jackie's arc that she, she was able to get herself out when the character recurred in the new iteration of 90210, they brought Jackie in who, uh, again, and she was back being a horrible mom and drinking. And, and, and of course they did because they had no creative imagination. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I got interviewed. I just I don't think the people. I don't, well, I don't maybe who knows? Care. Here we go. You know, but, but this is this is this is the truth. When the show, when that second show came, yeah, and. Uh, and, you know, they they chose and we were I wasn't expecting to be involved with it at all on any level. But nonetheless, I remember the New York Times guy did a big article about the fact it was coming back in this. Right. And he he asked, you know, I, I was interviewed for it. And um, what I said was that and why I thought that show was incredibly bogus. <laughs> it is 2008. America is about to elect Barack Obama. Right. And you have not even a mention of what's going on 
So you weren't interested in what kids were thinking or doing. You were interested in showing Jackie Taylor as a as a drug addict. Well, that, and, and that's and that was that paucity of information. And by the way, I know the showrunners, the first showrunners got fired almost very soon, and the second group was no better. And yeah. and I think that you know really one of the things that why when you see a show and people come back to it, like I never got into Dexter because I I, I wasn't going to be I wasn't interested in a serial killer. Yeah. But at the same time, I knew the guy who ran the show. And I knew the guy who was fired from running the show at one point. Mm -hmm. And now they do the new incantation and he's back. Yeah. Mm. And the thing I'll say about the difference between him and the other ones who were there is that he truly loved the characters. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, you really can't do that unless you have that feeling you know as well as i i've never met shonda rhimes but that she loved the characters that she created on grace and they've lasted for and the whole thing is one of the most successful shows in the history of television and on that on that note about the the new 90210 were you did you were you conflicted about returning to the character because of those reasons i was actually um so so in my own life um, I had become a priest and they they had a hard time finding me because I don't didn't have an agent anymore. I mean, it was just this wild thing that I get this email uh, that's saying, hey, we've been looking for you. We've written these scripts that you're in. And, you know, and I, I'm, I'm like, well, I don't I don't have room in my life actually to do this. I don't I live in in Virginia now. I don't live in L.A. And they, um, I guess, wanted the character enough to help set up, I guess, some of the tension for the two sisters, Silver and um, and Jenny's character, Kelly, um, that they were willing to put all of my scenes for several episodes in a single trip so that I could just only come out a few times. And so that was interesting. And I was concerned about the fact that Jackie was drinking again. And um, and I wanted there to be some kind of healing and wholeness that was, was at least a redemption or something. And they did eventually write that into the storyline that, that she gets cancer, she gets sober and, um, and reconciles with her daughters before they killed her off. So. Before they killed her off, yeah. Yes. Well, in, in our in our world, she's still doing okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I also I will say this. Um, what do you mean they, they killed you off? They, they killed Jackie Taylor yeah, in yes. a in a gun thing. No, 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 uh, no, no. Cancer. cancer. I got cancer. Yeah. And again, and, again, a lot of imagination goes into those storylines. Well, anyway, so I I will say playing the the sort of bedside goodbye with Jenny was very very powerful because we had known each other at that point for 19 years. And we, we did 10 years, right, on the first one and two seasons of the second one. And it was quite lovely. I, I knew I probably would never see her in person again. And we, you know, there was just sort of this gorgeous moment of, of um, coming together of, of Jackie and Kelly and Ann and Jenny, you know, it was one of those really yeah. lovely, lovely things to play. And the other thing is that by that time in my career as a priest, I had had quite a few parishioners who had died of cancer. And so in some ways I was inviting their spirits to be with me at the bedside so that I could, you know, sort of full circle, let, let them, them be present, you know, 
So absolutely. Hey, make sure that you send our, our conversation here to Jenny. I think I she will for sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Uh, and I almost called you Jackie. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it happens. Yeah. Um, and this has been great. Thank you so much for your insight here. This has been You're awesome. Welcome. Thank You're you. Welcome. Um, she's always, it's always great seeing Anne, isn't it, Charles? Oh, absolutely. You know, she was somebody and, and, I've, and I've told this story before, you know, I, I, I was surprised that someone like her would even come in to read for us. I mean, because we, you know, she, she had worked for Stephen Bochco, which who was the top of the food chain right? and, and, and cast by a, a, a list director. Now I had no idea that a list director was her brother-in-law, but right. I figured if the a list director cast her, I'll cast her. And, uh, <laughs> I'm sure happy that she had a good brother-in-law at the time because she was great to meet. She has a real strong personal relationship still, I think, with Carol Potter. Yes. And and, and I believe Matthew Lawrence, too, actually. So, yes. um, yeah, so it was great. Always great to talk to her and, and get her insights on the character she had to play. And and at the time, uh, and knowing that she has actually become a... a um, a, a minister a minister i was gonna i, I knew I, I i was grappling oh no i can't say priest that's Catholic. priest preacher minister i didn't know which one you preacher, were gonna minister go. is good but yeah. that because she has that you know that the that the moral values of the character that she played very vastly different oh definitely she was we talked a little bit about this you writing actions uh kelly even looking at uh Looking, saying so much without saying anything by knowing that Babette is uh, a trouble. What you know what I mean? But she doesn't need to say, "Mom, why are you talking to Babette? You know she's trouble." Like we just see it, and there's something really powerful about seeing that. Right, in and and the key to that kind of thing is that you make it that it's not the focus of the scene. It's just a little item. If you saw it, it it you you'll understand where it's going, and because it was only the first. If we had done that one. And then in act one and then jump to act three and had this, it wouldn't make, uh, mm -hmm. it wouldn't make them a pressure, which seemed like it was just coming out of nowhere. But this was the first of the other steps laid in so that Kelly explained the backstory of the relationships and that this woman, you know, was one of her Coke friends yes. and that it, all of those kind of things just coming out. And, yeah. uh, but, but in the next act, so you're That's keeping it. the story alive. Yes. Uh, beautiful stuff. The the, the 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 chemistry between the two of them is is fantastic. Um, the other thing too that's happening here, we touched on it, is that Billy Vera um, is the bookie, and he's a friend of yours. But he's 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 a, he's done so much great stuff with music. A lot of people don't know, but there's a Family Ties episode, and uh, what would you do at this moment? Is is Billy Vera's song like that's that he and we've talked to him about that in the Patreon. Um, I'm gonna play some clips here now of him talking about uh, his experience on 90210. So you come into our show and and you just you you came in first. We had just watched it. You played a bookie. I, we, we did the we shot out at Santa Anita Racetrack. Yeah. And but at that point we didn't have any notion that you'd be coming back to be a recurring role. Is that's right, right? Because the, the Brandon Walsh becoming a degenerate gambler didn't really happen until season three. Right. 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 What do you remember about now? Now, did you know Joey Tata before you uh, started working on our show? The, the guy who played Nat? I didn't know. No, I did not. He was very nice to me, though. 
Oh, God, you guys were like soul brothers. You guys uh, really natural. He just latched on to me, you know, and, um, you know, he was some, he was the adult in the room, you know, so to speak. Exactly. As, as if any actors are adults. But, you know, uh, yeah, it was nice. But, but uh, the, the kid that played Brandon, he was, he was really nice. Jason. Yeah. Jason Priest. Yes. Very nice. So I remember you came on, on set, I think, the first or second day I was there. And and you you were talking to me and you said you looked around and you said, oh, you 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 get to work with the nice ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just meant they were nice to me. I, I don't want to yeah. that the I, I, I probably shouldn't have said that. You know. No, you can, no that's one of the great things. You can even use the F word, Bill. We're we're some is a equal opportunity offender. Yes. And if I say something really like shitty about someone, he just cuts it. So, you know, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that once Brandon gets over that number to you and, you know, whether that number back in the day was $500 or a thousand dollars or 20, whatever it was, $2,500, there's a certain number that every bookie, that's the end of the tolerance. That's the end of the, 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 the carry as it were. And what I remember about the one where you came to collect your your due is how you, it, without overact, without doing anything, were able to project menace. You didn't put your fist up. You just no screaming. You don't do that. You know, I, I growing up where I grew up, uh, my my friend's uncle Phil, who was known as King Farouk was the head of the Northern Westchester mob. And sometimes we would go with him in White Plains. They had these these, these gambling uh, dens. They were usually on the second floor on Main Street. And and he'd go up there to collect. You know, he had to show his face. Uh, and, you know, sometimes my friend Crazy Joe and I, we'd, we'd follow behind him with these bags full of money i mean all kinds of money right and and uncle phil he he was like that you know he didn't he didn't he didn't raise his voice you know he just showed up he kept a pretty straight face most of the time uh, maybe a little smile here and there and so he was kind of um he was kind of my inspiration for duke uh portraying duke yeah I know what Pete always asks, so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and do it. So you do this role, and you're on our show. That period of time in the '90s, did people come up to you and say, "Are you Duke the Bookie?" <laughs> A couple of times, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, or, or it would it would be more like, "Oh, Billy, man, uh, you know, some stranger. I I, I saw you on on a 90210." You know, and 90210 was was a, uh, one of the more popular shows on television at that time. Especially you know? then, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like, um, you know, some here today, gone tomorrow, stupid sitcom, you know. We it's, wouldn't be. Yeah, it's 30 years later. We wouldn't be talking if it was. That's right. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I mean, some of the things I did at that period were, you know, totally forgotten. Sometimes forgotten by me. <laughs> you know? And somebody said, "You were in such and such." I said, uh, "I think I was." What? Nine hundred two one zero was. I mean, it was. You know, it was like family ties. You know, in a sense. Which, yeah. 
course, that that brought me some success as well. You did the music for one, didn't you? I, I did. I did. Uh, well, here's the story on that. Uh, I have a clip of that. Let me show. You, let me show you this real quick. He's got a clip of Family Ties, not well, a Todd, 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 I do have that too, but Todd just sent me this, so let me. Oh, see. nice. I would do at this moment. Well, anyway, so this is the song. This is the moment. This is one like growing up. I watched this show in the '80s, and that moment. I mean, I that's how one of the ways I tie that song is through Family Ties. Um, how did Family Times come about for you? Well, I was uh, sitting around my living room on Sycamore, right above Beverly Boulevard at the time, near the New Beverly Theater. And my phone rings, and the guy says, is this the Billy Vera that, uh, that has the band? I said, yeah. He said, oh, good. My name's Michael Whitehorn, and I uh, produce oh, and write. I know, I know Michael. Yeah. He said, uh, he said, we were at the club the other night, and... Uh, we heard you do a song that we thought might be perfect for an episode we have coming up. And when he, we figured out what that song was, and uh, I, you know, I told him to make a deal with my publisher, Warner Brothers Music, and I get a bag full of mail. Now I had had a number of songs on TV shows before, and you know, I'd make you make a few bucks, and it's just nice, but never got mail. So people respond to this song. Maybe I ought to see about see if I can get it get it re released. Nobody was interested. And finally, I'm talking to a friend of mine, Richard Foos, who owned a label called Rhino Records. I, you know I, Rhino Records, Pete? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That Beverly Hills guys. Yeah. yeah. Foos Brothers. So I I I uh, I said, how many records do you need to sell to break even, Richard? And uh, he said, oh, a couple of thousand. We have low overhead here. I said, what if I guarantee you 2,000? Would you put out this song uh, on an, an album? He said, and he only did it because he liked me. You know, he, he never thought he'd make a nickel off of it. So by the time he got the album out, it was the next season, and they used the song again when the girl breaks up with Michael J. Fox. That's where everyone remembers it. That's so when NBC said they got more calls than any time in the history of the network. Uh, and people start calling radio stations, record stores. Who's the singer? What's the name of the song? Where can we buy it? And the thing ends up the number one record in the country. And it changed my life, literally. Uh, and, and that's, that's basically how it happened. You know, another thing is I, I got to sing a couple of theme songs on TV shows. Empty Nest was the first one. But the one that really made the big bucks and was like having a hit record, I, I sang the theme song to uh, uh, oh, King of Queens. And that show was nine years. Yeah. Now, as we speak, it's playing somewhere in the world. And for which I get paid, dude. You know? <laughs> it's incredible. You know, I was, at a, I was at a karaoke bar one time and a guy – he was breaking up with his girlfriend. Just to, to tie, the tie, the whole tie-in of uh, family ties. He sang at this moment. He was oh, on God. his knees. He was emotional. He started crying. The whole room, you, the whole room, lit up and applauded this man. You know, he was drunk out of his mind. This is not what you intended when you wrote the song. <laughs> but wow, it is really a part of the 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 culture. We had a conversation a couple of weeks ago. In case you've forgotten. 
Maybe I should uh, refresh your memory. No, I remember what you said. And where's my money? I said I'd let you slide one time and one time only. And I paid you every cent. That was the last time. Where's the money you owe me now? I, I, I'll get it. I just need a few days, Duke. <laughs> I like you. I do. But this guy in my car, that's Tony. And Tony isn't like anybody. You don't like nobody. So, you know how much you owe us, right? Yeah. It's a lot of money, kid. You got till Friday. But that delivery of how you deliver that, like, like you said, Chuck, there was no, there isn't a, a, a like a Goodfellas vibe here. It's just subtle, calm, and you really brought something like where you knew, like you said, that Brandon was in was in big trouble here. Yeah, because yeah, if you if if we had written for Billy and we're gonna mess you up, well then he's a bad guy. Then he's not real. Then it's something else. But to just point to a guy in the car and say he don't like nobody uh, says a lot without having to to uh, you know uh, over overkill. Well, that's how those guys are. You know, I mean, when, when I started out in the in the early '60s playing those clubs on Times Square and everywhere, and the mob guys they. They owned every club, you know, yeah, and, sure. and they were more like that than what you see on television and in um, these corny movies. Yeah. Um, Billy, they're gonna, the fans of this will make, want me to ask this question, but they did bring, after Chuck left, they brought the Duke character back to 90210 in the later years. Did they ever approach you to be Duke again? They recasted it and had somebody else play Duke. But well, I, I honestly don't remember. Uh, uh, you know, maybe I was. No, I can answer that, Pete. Whatever year it was, they wouldn't have brought Billy back because to bring Billy back would have to acknowledge there was a really good television show before those guys ran it into the ground. <laughs> right. Yes. See, Billy, that can say anything on our podcast. That was great that we got to talk to Billy. That was a while ago that we talked to him. Um, casting Billy Vera as the bookie. I have to tell you, this is uh, this is fantastic. He has this old soul. He comes across as, you know, uh, as the bookie. Tell me about how you were made aware of Billy Vera, and uh, he he lived near you, right? He lived directly behind me in a part of town called Carthay Circle, which is around the County Art Museum around Fairfax and Wilshire. And Billy had already been, you know, a, a pretty well known rocker at that point. Um, and, and, and session man and songwriter and in that world, um, we had a mutual friend and I would see him at that friend's birthday parties or things like that, at, at, that we'd go to at the time. And, uh, and I can't remember if he said, I'm acting now, use me, or he walked in a room, oh, you're an actor too. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is that, uh, we scored big we time very good in the part. The, the the idea that Brandon is gambling, um, Brandon is not a character that has many vices. Uh, he tried to drink once he smashed his car. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he he's he's someone that doesn't really get tempted by things, but uh, maybe maybe girls, you know. But um, the idea about the gambling itself, where did that sort of come from? Well, I think he gets I think he gets tempted, and I think he's you know he is tempted by it all. Sure, he just has to overcome the temptation sure because there's um, even drugs and, and but and, but yeah. if you are if you are somebody who has a drinking problem because you can't hold your alcohol 
even mm-hmm. though we just touched on it real briefly in one episode. You have to assume that maybe when they Minnesota, he he also liked drinking Ham's beer and uh, and drank too much or whatever it would be. But that you know, someone who's addicted to something is can also then get addicted to something else, even right. if it's just being addicted to watching you know Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Just you know, watching, get into these addicted to watching Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two One Zero. <laughs> yeah, that one too. Um, so you know, you 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 get into that that kind of pattern, and so I think it is valid that he would do that. And gambling is is one of those things that um, you don't associate. Most people won't associate with high school. Right. I definitely associate it with high school because uh, I remember very well in my senior year. Uh, in the history class, the civics class, the uh, there was a whole bunch of guys who'd sit in the back of the room, including our star basketball player at the time. And instead of listening about the um, how the Constitution is, is put together, they would be looking at the racing forms because these guys would take off to either Santa Monica, Santa Anita, or Hollywood Park right after lunch if they didn't have sports practice. And when it was out of season, you did not have sports practice. So in the fall, the basketball player would go out to Santa Anita. And in the spring, the football players would go down to Hollywood Park because they weren't obligated to to, to be at practice and stay after school. And so, you know, that notion of, of betting on the, you know, was, was right there. It didn't have a teenage bookie, but nonetheless, the topic was always in the news back then. And um, so we just took advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be something really great for a few episodes for Jason's for Brandon. Right. And you know. and it was interesting. We use basketball and not football because betting on basketball is more fool's errand than betting on uh, football. I think that even okay. comes up a couple of times. I think Steve tells uh, Brandon that at some point, maybe in the next episode when he really gets in, right. that that it's a sucker's bet and all it is. Of that. It is. <laughs> I think it remains. I think it remains. Just like yeah. an over-under is a sucker's bet. You have to be really good at that to know. And then the ending, of course, with, um, as we talked about and speculated, where now we now know that uh, Jack McKay is coming out of jail. That's the big That's the big beat that you want everybody to be left with. That's our the cliffhanger, I guess, if we want to use that phrase. But Because now we're going to see what's going to happen with the return of, of Jack McKay. Well, that's what we knew they would be talking about on the boards of Prodigy. We knew that that was what was going to get them. And it also, you know, it, and it also leans into the, you know, the, the, the serialized, uh, more melodramatic storylines where we're going and, and, and deeper ones, you know. And, um, uh, and you could tell right then. So, you know, we, you had commented on the patron. Oh, Dylan didn't have too much to do this episode. He was just he in the peach hung pit out of the peach day. pit. Although we did. The one thing we didn't talk about is that when he's thinking about you have to make up your mind, he did have fantasies with with both uh, Brenda and Kelly. Brenda was, you know, the uh, barefoot and pregnant with six, five kids in the Walsh house. And uh, and Kelly was uh just a walking credit card uh just, you know on a and it's interesting though i we didn't i didn't think about this on the patreon but they are very different lifestyles and depending on you know where you stand on this in this triangle as you know we have our super fans that are 
Team Brenda or Team Kelly, maybe it's appealing to think as a Team Brenda, six kids in the house and the whole nine, like he would have been happier in that lifestyle than the other one where he's going through all of his money and tearing up credit cards. I don't know. I mean, I think there's, <laughs> I think there is um, a downside to each. Fair and enough. That's all we, we, we showed, you know, yes, exactly. not anything else about the relationships. Yes. And also they were fantasies. So. Right. Well, and there's, and there's, there, I love the use of fantasy in this episode. Cause there, there's, there's three, there's this, this, and then of course, Jim Walsh's fantasy right. when, he thinks that that she's coming on to him, and and then I love that you literally almost have the same conversation, you know, uh, with Paula Tricky's character, but she's just not hitting on him. She's going in somewhere with her boyfriend, and back to reality, Jim Walsh, right? Right, back to Florida. They're getting married. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, this has been fun covering all of this. Um, really, really great episode. I mean, we're talking season three. I mean, season three to me is some of the finest stuff that 90210 uh, brings. My favorite year. Not yeah. even, a, no question about it. Same so much, year. so many interesting things happening. The family and the parents and the kids and the triangles and, and the relationships. And it's really, um, it's delivering on all, on all, on all, in all ways. So. Thank you, Pete. Yeah. All right, man. This has been great. We will see everybody uh, next week. And uh, this is Beverly Hills 90210 Show. Chuck, have a good week. All right, man. You too, buddy.